everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Mary McPherson, author of The First Blast of the Trumpet, a novel about the origins and early life of John Knox, the primary figure in the Scottish Reformation. Much of the novel focuses on Elizabeth Hepburn, who in the book is John Knox's godmother, a Catholic prioress who headed the Abbey of St. Mary's between 1520 or so and 1563. History has preserved only the bare facts of Elizabeth's life. This dearth of information gives Mary plenty of scope for her imagination, and she does a splendid job of filling in the gaps. Although I would normally read the opening page of the first blast of the trumpet here, we decided to let Mary take on that task. My parents grew up in Scotland, and I can speak Scots with the best of them, but I'm a wee bit out of practice. So I'm happy to step back and let Mary take the floor. Hello, Mary. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine, Caroline. And you? I'm very good. Uh, you're going to read the introductory passage this time instead of me, yeah. so that they can get the full benefit of your oh. Scots accent. <laughs> That's right. You'll get the full benefit of my Scottish R's. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, this is chapter one. It's um, The title of the chapter is Halloween, and it's set in Hales Castle in Scotland, and it takes place in 1511. There's no rhyme nor reason to it. Your destiny is already laid down. Hunkered down on the hearth, Betsy jiggled the glowing embers of the poker and then carefully crisscrossed dry hazel branches on top. Huddled together on the settle, the three girls drew back as the fire burst into life, the crackling flames spitting out fiery sprites that frolicked their way up the chimney. Betsy wiped the slather of sweat from her splushed face and scrambled up to plank herself down beside them in the ingle nook. Doom laden, Elizabeth queried her head dirling at the thought. So where's the use in making a wish? Wishes, and hopes and dreams, Betsy added, are what keep us going. You make a wish in the hope that it'll come true, but you'll never flee your fate. Now then, my jaggy thistle, when the flames die down, cast your nut into the fire and wish in it, Betsy instructed. And mind, be careful what you wish for. Elizabeth dealt her hand into the basket and pulled out two nuts coupled together. Ah, a St John's nut. Betsy nodded slowly. That's a good omen. That my wish will come true. Elizabeth's ferny green eyes glinted in the firelight. <laughs> Nay, lass, but it'll guard you against the evil eye. Now, don't fling it, but keep it safe as a charm against witches. With a doubtful glance at Betsy... Elizabeth put the nut in the pocket of her breeches and chose again. I will never marry, she began, pausing to savour the astonished gasps before throwing her nut onto the red-hot embers. Unless for love. Oh, now, don't be all blown bluster, Elizabeth, my lass. It's a wish of to make, not a deal with the devil. And in secret. Otherwise, it'll no come through, Betsy warned. Then I'll make it come through, Elizabeth retorted. So that's the uh, the first part. Hello? Oh. Yes, I'm here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, already we have a very good sense of Elizabeth, the jaggy thistle, uh, and I can't wait to get back to these three girls. But um, first of all, we normally start out by talking a little bit about you. So uh, oh. I would like to know um, how you came to write this book, uh, where you grew up, who your mentors were, how you came to writing. I know you have a doctorate in Russian history, and so that's an interesting progression too. So tell me something about yourself. 
Right. Well, as I say, I grew up in Musselburgh, East Lothian, um, which is just uh, which is not very far from where Muirfield, the Open Golf Championship, is happening at the moment. And Musselburgh is about six miles from the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh. I now realise how privileged I was or lucky to live in Lowland Scotland, you know, full of the history, surrounded by ruined castles and palaces and abbeys. And I was actually brought up in the site of the Battle of Pinkie, of which more later. Um, you could say I imbibed tales and legends, you know, Scottish tales and legends at the time. But actually, when I did history at school, I was bored stiff. Anyway, I left school at 16 to do a secretarial course, um, which is very boring. Mind you, it did give me some typing skills, which came in handy. But um, then I saw the film Dr. Zhivago, and that started my, you know, my love affair with all things Russian, especially Russian literature. And um, I, I really, you know, I, had, I suddenly had a desire to read Russian in the, you know, in the original. You know, I hadn't done any Russian at school. I'd done French, German, Latin, and I seemed to have an aptitude for language. So when I got the, the chance to do a, a one-year intensive language course, uh, I jumped at it. And then I did an honours degree. And then finally, I went on to do a PhD on the Russian writer Mikhail Lermontov, funnily enough, who's... Um, one of whose ancestors is reputed to be Thomas Reimer, the Scottish bard. Anyway, as you probably know, um, you know, Russian studies have been declining in universities. So when I took early retirement, um, I came back to live in East Lothian. And being, a, being an academic, I began to research more about the, the history of the area. I mean, so much has happened here um, and uh, I was especially interested in the 16th century, you know, Mary Queen of Scots and all that. And uh, I was doing some research in my local town of Haddington and where the Treaty of Haddington was signed. Now, just to give you an explanation, the Treaty of Haddington was the treaty which betrothed Mary Queen of Scots to the Dauphin of France. And it was signed at the Abbey there. And... Uh, you know, it was while doing research into this that I came across what I call little threads and clues, which, um, you know, led to this amazing story that I found. And this story could only be written as fiction. Anyway, as I say, I've always wanted to write, as I say, brought up with, you know, tales and legends, um, you know, and I've always wanted to write myself. I've had a shot at short stories and I've tried contemporary fiction, but I can only seem to do satire, which, <laughs> however, anyway. But historical fiction just seemed to be right up my street. Um, I suppose it combines my academic's love of research, you know, with a passion for telling a story, with a passion for literature. But to go from... Well, I found, anyway, going from academic writing to fiction was quite a steep learning curve. Um, you know, I've studied literature all my life, but uh, perhaps I knew the theory, but practice was, you know, a different kettle of fish. I feel now as if I'm using a completely the, the other side of my brain or some other part of my brain, which um, you don't use in academia. You know, in the academic world, as you know, is, is got to be very objective. You've got to back up all your statements with notes and references. and But... Uh, Fiction gives a much greater freedom, you know, to fill in the gaps between, you know, these the known facts or, or interpret or speculate. You know, I love being able to, you know, I love being free to make leaps of imagination and follow my inspiration, and especially to breathe life into the characters that you hear about, you know, in, in history books. I just want to know who's who they were as people, and uh, bring them to life, as it were. And I just love being able to speculate, make conjectures. Anyway. 
So I had, but mind you, I had to work hard to get my, what I call my artistic license. And this novel has been a labour of love for a number of years. Um, I love doing the research. And um, when I finally got it into to shape, I sent it off to various Scottish publishers um, who said, oh, no audience for Scottish historical fiction or, you know, no audience outside Scotland, all this sort of stuff. And um, and Knox is quite a controversial character. And uh, then sent it off to Knox Robinson and they bravely took it on. <laughs> so that's... Um, so, I, as I say, I didn't really study fiction writing. I just had to, you know, um, work my own way, you know, work out how to do it myself, really, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I did the same thing, actually. I mean, yeah. I, I'm a historian, too, and I had exactly the same reaction as you. It was almost like I was starting from scratch and relearning. Yeah. I mean, I knew how to write, but I didn't know yes. how to, you know, you do, you, in history, even in, in academic history, you don't get into how people feel and how they... Um, you know what they would be thinking. That's you, right. You, you you don't recreate their experience. In no, and, and, and you're not. It's, you it's, fiction. That's right. And it's frowned upon if you do. Oh, you can't do that because there's no evidence. You know, right. for this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But that's the fun of the fiction. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I thought, yeah. Well, it's lovely. I mean, I actually. I don't know why. My parents grew up in Scotland. All my relatives are in Scotland, um, uh-huh. except for the ones who were in Scotland and left, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I have never really enjoyed Scottish history for whatever reason. Uh, uh-huh. But I loved your book. I thought it was really oh. great. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we got we didn't get Scottish history at school. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I hated history at school. It was all, well, I must say British history, but I thought it was English history, you know, Acts of Parliament and... And I thought Scottish history was kind of tales and legends, you know. But it wasn't until I really came back and started looking into it, and I'm fascinated by it, (laughs) as much as by Russian um, history, you know. Lots of parallels, you know. And I like the 16th century because it's all blood and guts and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It is everywhere. It's a wonderful century. (laughs) Um, Do you have... um, um well, you said that you, you taught yourself to write, uh, which I did also, but are there, for example, Dorothy Dunnett, I think, is yes. the only person I know who's really done a lot of Scottish historical writing, uh, or did. She's not with us anymore. No. Um, was she an influence for you, or were there others? Uh, well, especially D- Dorothy Dunnett, I think, but she's a sort of pinnacle, you know, she's so clever and intelligent, you know. Um, her books are so well-crafted that I can never hope to achieve that. But, uh, yes, I mean, I've read... As I say, um, I, I, I found reading um, historical fiction was really helpful. I've read all the stuff on Mary Queen of Scots, you know, um, everything from uh, Antonia Fraser to, you know, whoever's been writing the latest thing, I can't remember. But anyway, um, but Jean Plady. Um, oh, yes, Jean Plady. I remember her, right? Yeah, Nigel Tranter, of course, is the, you know, I suppose the most famous, um, yeah. So I... I, I, I I read very widely to try and get, you know, to get as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, so, yes, Dor- Dorothy Dunnett, um, then she's got a blank, you know. Um, and or, my, one of my favourites that I think you know as well is Rhea Tannehill. Oh, yes, yes, yes my mother's yes. friend, right? <laughs> exactly. yes, yeah, I mean, she's a very good writer too. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Dorothy Dunnett does fantastic descriptions. I Actually, her characters are often very hard to relate to, I think. Yes. And yours are much more human and sort of personal and not as you know hers tend to be very distant and hard to and, figure uh, yes. out 
and very sort of self, self-conscious in a way, um, you know, I, I, if I'm explaining that correctly. Yes, but cold and distant, you know, mm-hmm. the Lyman and, you know. Yeah, Lyman especially, yeah. he's very hard yeah. to relate to. Yeah, and um, very witty all the time and always, you know, gesturing in a way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have other writers that you hang around with or you are all on your own there in Islothian? Well, Basically, uh, there's not a lot of it, that sort of scene. I think there's uh, one other lady I know who's written a, a Scottish historical novel set in the 16th century, Margaret Ski, and we're kind of in touch and, you know, we sort of um, commiserate how difficult it is to get Scottish writing <laughs> out there, you know. Um, as I say, one of the problems, I suppose, is the language, which we'll probably come to in a minute. But uh, apart from that, there's nobody really doing... A lot of Scottish writers nowadays are doing crime fiction, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, you go into the sites and you go to conferences, and it's and they're all into crime fiction. Um, I suppose ever, ever since Re- Ian Rankin started the trend, you know, I don't know why, but you'll you'll find a lot of Scottish crime fiction writers, but but not so many um, historical. Um, the other writer I know is Jana Hickson, but she's writing about the French uh, Queen. I think it's Catherine. Um, one of the French queens, but yes, there's you know, there's not a lot of us around at the moment. <laughs> Well, that's a bit lonely, but <laughs> you guys get on and talk to us. <laughs> that's good. <Yeah. laughs> so let's talk about the, this scene that you just read. Tell us who these three girls are. Oh, well, the three girls, well, obviously there's, um, well, the three girls are the daughters of um, the, Earl of he- uh, the Earl of Bothwell, Patrick uh, Patrick Hepburn. And um, the two girls, uh, Elizabeth and... Well, Elizabeth Hepburn is the one that becomes a heroine, if you novel, if you like. And her sister, Meg, and the other girl is Kate, who's kind of the cuckoo in the nest. We're not quite sure where she came from, but she's been assimilated into the family. You know, it's one of these, um, it's one of these children that has been dumped into a family where her parents... It's, she's of unsure parentage, I think, I see in the novel, you know. And uh, these three girls are... Well, they're basically orphans. Their mother has died and their father's always off, you know, at court. And they're being brought up by Betsy, their their nurse. And um, we follow their lives, as it were. You know, Elizabeth is the one who, you know, she's the feisty one. She's the one with the strong character and she's not going to be told what to do. Meg, uh, her sister, her older sister, is very... um, She's the one that should become a nun. She's very contemplative and quiet and, you know... And, and then we have Kate, who is, I suppose, Elizabeth's main rival. They they don't get on at all. And there's in, the, in the second scene where they're at, they're almost at each other's throats. Um, so that you know, as I say, these are the uh, the daughters of the uh, the Earl of Bothwell. And of course, the Bothwells. Just to give a bit of history, um, people know the name Bothwell from Mary Queen of Scots because uh, she married James Hepburn, who was the fourth Earl of Bothwell, and these. Uh, these two girls are the daughters of the second Earl of Bothwell. And um, this happens just before Flodden. And this is 1511. Flodden, of course, is 1513. And their brother, Adam, goes off to Flodden, never to come back. Um, so, yeah, so we sort of follow the fates of those three girls, and uh, but mainly Elizabeth, who's set to become the prioress of the, the convent against her will because she wants to, as it says in the, you know, she says, I'm never going to, you know, I will never marry unless for love. And she's got her heart set on uh, David Lindsay. Who, yeah, and that's who, you know, she wants to marry. And 
Well, that bit meant better not tell too much of the story. <laughs> Is that? Uh, yes, no, actually, I mean, I might I'd ask you general questions, but uh, you can go just as far into the story as you're right. comfortable yeah. with. You don't have to tell them everything. We want them to read the book and be. Yes, right. <laughs> um, I, I have mentioned to you when I, I was corresponding that I would ask about the language, but actually, I think. The only point I'd really want to make about it is that it's actually not that hard to follow. Uh, you can usually figure out what the words are from the context. Yeah. Um, um, it's true that, you know, I grew, I, I didn't grow up in Scotland. I grew up in the south mm-hmm. of England with Scottish parents. But we did go to visit my relatives in Scotland when I was a child. So I heard a lot of these words, even though I didn't know how they were spelled and that yeah. kind of thing. So I, it did give me an advantage. But there were a lot of words I didn't know also. But there were no, there was no point where I felt that I really couldn't figure out something that was crucial, um, as I sometimes feel when I'm reading Russian, for example, oh, yes. despite my 25 years of, <laughs> yes. or 40 years, more like now, um, uh, of studying the language. Oh, no, the feeling. But what I wanted to do, I did try to make sure that they were in context or, or mm-hmm. give a little explanation, use another word later, and, you know, give a little explanation. You know, like in the first chapter when I said something like, you know, oh, Betsy says, you mandri, you're weird. And then Elizabeth looks quizzical and she says, oh, you must follow your fate. So, you know, but I must admit, there's so many Scottish words that can only describe, you know, uh, the situation, you know, like drich and do and glake. It just so... Right. <laughs> and yeah. they're often very uh, evocative, like curling yes. and burling and <laughs> things like yeah. that. I mean, things that I'm f- trying to remember. Oh, Tapsaltiri, I think. Oh, Tapsaltiri, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which so, sounds oh. so much better than Topsy Turvy somehow. Yes, I mean, it really it. captures that sense of being confused. Oh, that's good. <laughs> So let's like, well, I mean, people have heard it now, and and uh, yeah. So now they know they shouldn't be afraid. They can. Oh, that's you know, good. That's good because yeah, I think that it's, it. It's, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's always a problem if you're using slightly different language. I mean, it's but it, it flows very naturally, so I don't think people need to worry about it really. Oh, but, that's yeah. Well, that's um, good. I do want to get back to Elizabeth, especially oh, and David oh. Lindsay and the rest. But before we do that, the main character of your trilogy is John Knox and so could you give people just a sense like a a short description of who he was uh, for the people who were sleeping through that part of their history classes (laughs) (laughs) right well as I say you know lots of people say to me gosh you've written a novel about John Knox you know he's not the most obvious candidate for a novel you know sometimes I wish I'd chosen a beer torsoed Highlander you know wielding a claymore you know (laughs) Uh, We're certainly made for a different cover picture. I think so. John Knox did carry a sword, you know, um, later anyway. But anyway, you know, I suppose John Knox is, as you say, the founding father of the Scottish Reformation. And, um, you know, he looms over Scottish history, you know, this lowering figure. But not much is known about the man himself. Um, we've all we've all got this sort of caricature of John Knox as, you know, a bit of a, well, in my youth, he was a bit of a bogeyman, you know. This pulpit thumping misogynist, you know, the Calvinist Puritan, you know, and he's been blamed for banning Christmas and football and Sundays and all this, you know. Oh well, now oh. I mean, why didn't they string him up? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> football and Sundays. I mean, really. 
exactly. Yeah, that's what I remember when I said that at a talk. Uh, the reaction that got. But yes, um, it wasn't. But then on the, uh, you know, on, on the plus side, you know, I think we're in two camps in Scotland. You know, you've got this popular imagination, and then you've got on the other side, to his credit, you know, he has been called the first Democrat because in his first blast of the trumpet, you know, um, his famous remarks was that he proposed that if a monarch didn't represent the wishes of the people, then they should get rid of them. You know, that was treason, you know, um, especially with Mary Queen of Scots. But um, uh, he, he, um, but, but he did believe in free education for all and a system of social security, you know, for the poor and infirm, you know. So he wasn't, you know, I was going to say he wasn't all bad. I can't say that. <laughs> anyway, anyway, but and I suppose by breaking away from the, uh, from the Church of Rome, you know, lots of people say, well, this led the way to the Scottish Enlightenment. Without this breakaway, we would still be maybe enthralled to, you know, the, the medieval Roman Church. But anyway, love him, love him or loathe him, revere or revile him. You can't really deny his influence on our culture. But anyway, I was intrigued to find um, more about this contradictory character. You know, I wanted to, what you might say, unveil the man behind the myth. Um, But it was quite difficult because although John Knox has written reams about the the Reformation, six volumes on the, you know, his view of the Reformation, he's he's absolutely silent about his first 33 years. Um, He's notoriously tight-lipped about his life before he became, you know, well, an evangelical, as they called him then. Even the few facts that um, uh, that we know about him are disputed. All we know is that he was born in Haddington, around about fifteen thirteen or fourteen, uh, which means uh, I like to say that his five hundredth anniversary of his birth is coming up or soon. He studied at St Andrews University and he served as a, a notary public, which sorry, um, a notary apostolic, which is a kind of paralegal at St Mary's in Haddington, and then. Around 1540, he left the the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, you became a priest. Sorry, missed that bit. Became a priest. He left the Roman Catholic Church to and to become a tutor to sons of Protestant lairs because the Reformation was sort of you know uh, gradually coming into Scotland. And then I suppose the most uh, turn, the greatest turning point was when he met um, the charismatic reformist preacher George Wishart, who was travelling around Scotland at the time. And John Knox has got a lovely phrase. He says that, you know, George Wishart pulled him from the puddle of papistry <laughs> and he dropped everything to follow, uh, a bit like John the Baptist, he dropped everything to follow George Wishart, uh, became his bodyguard, and this is where the sword comes in. Um, he, he carried a two-handed sword to defend him because he was being pursued by Cardinal Beaton. Cardinal Beaton was the, you know... Uh, obviously against the the Reformation. It was, uh, Protestantism was heresy. And he arrested um, Wishart in Haddington, here in Haddington, and he was burned at the stake uh, in St Andrews. John Knox then went into hiding, and um, he, but then he was invited to become the chaplain at St Andrews Castle, where the assassins were holed up. He was arrested along with them and then sent to the galleys, um, he was arrested by the French and sent to the galleys. So that's a kind of, you know, his early years, if you like. Um, is that enough on that? Because, they, you know, obviously... Yes, that's fine. I just wanted yeah. to make sure that people knew when we said John Knox, who we were talking about, uh, yeah. rather more than I had just said the Scottish Reformation, but I think people yeah. don't necessarily know a great deal about that either. So yeah. So that's yeah. great. No, that that's lovely, and that sets up uh, the rest of the things. So the next thing I was going to 
I was going to link this back into our discussion of Elizabeth because yeah. your title, The First Blast of the Trumpet, comes from um, John, one of Knox's publications, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, which yes. doesn't it, it does make him sound like a misogynist, we have to say. Well. <laughs> and yet, here you are telling his story primarily um, through the women in his life, at least for this first volume. So tell us yeah. how... Uh, he and uh, how he becomes uh, connected with Elizabeth and why well, you have chosen to tell the story right. so much well, focusing on her. Well, I must admit, I found Elizabeth a fascinating character. She was such a, you know, just a little bit about Elizabeth, um, you know, uh, to go on from that, just a little bit about Elizabeth, because she was the prioress of the, uh, the Abbey at St. Mary's and she became a nun clearly against her will. But... Um, uh, one of the things that have always puzzled people is how John Knox, who was left an orphan um, after his father was killed at Flodden and then his mother died, how could a poor orphan lad afford a university education? And, um, you know, um, and who brought up this poor motherless bairn? And John Knox, in his later works, always hints at a strong connection with the Hepburn family. And, you know, I was intrigued by that. I said, what could the, what could the you know, what could the connection be? If he'd gone to school in Haddington, he would have been around St Mary's and, you know, in the Abbey. And he was a notary apostolic at the, you know, at the Abbey. So there were so many connections with the Hepburn family. And as I say, Elizabeth Hepburn just jumped out of the page at me when I found out more about her because... According to the records, um, she was the illegitimate daughter of a, a canon. Um, you know, uh, I've said that she's the daughter of the, well, obviously for the no novel, we don't know that until later. Ooh, <laughs> but, um, and she became the prioress at a young age, a very young age of 24. So she was obviously appointed by the Hepburn family to look after their interests. And um, so I think um, with, given John Knox's uh, references to the Hepburns, he must have had a strong connection with them. And um, I just wonder, you know, that, I suppose that's where the, 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 the seeds of the novel came from. You know, what was his relationship to Elizabeth Hepburn, you know? And he's always had, you know, to give him his credit, Knox has always had intense relationships with women. So if he'd been brought up, you know, in a with among men, um, I just felt that he wouldn't have had such intense relationships with the women in his life, if you understand. Maybe I'm making some psychological, you know, um, links here. But um, and I think it's always intrigued me his relationships with women because although he comes across as a misogynist in the first blast, I mean, he was only saying what most men of the time were saying, you know, that women were, um, you know, second-class creatures and not fit to rule. And, you know, when you look at other, other, you know, I've looked at other literature and there's, they're all saying that. <laughs> so he wasn't alone in that. It's just that he said, you know, in his, I suppose, um, in his rather strong way, he, you know, he's the one that, <laughs> that gets all the flack. Anyway, um, so, so, yes. Um, and the other thing about Elizabeth Hepburn, she was accused of a certain um, misdemeanour in 1542. Uh, well, I suppose I can tell you what it is, carnal dalliance, which for a nun is a bit, uh, a bit strange to be accused of something like that. And, of course, Knox was a notary. He was the, he was the, the lawyer at the time. So there's lots of little... I'm, I'm talking about hints and clues and things that have been following up and um, weaving together. So, um, yeah, and I, as I say, I found her a, a very interesting character. 
I find her a very interesting character too. Very appealing. Very yeah. well-rounded. Um, in the book, you you uh, hypothesized that she was Knox's godmother. Is that that's yeah. something that you made up, or there's evidence for that? Uh, well, as I say, there's no evidence for hardly anything about mm-hmm. Knox's early life. I mean, this is just conjecture. I had to get a relationship. You know, who would send him to university? Um, who would fund his education? And I think the Hepburn family, you know, more than likely, because um, because um, Knox was born in Haddington, the Bothwells would have been his liege lords, you know. But why would they send um, why would they send just any old orphan off to university without some, you know, I suppose without some kith and kin relationship? You know what I mean? Right. So I think, well, so maybe it could have been, you know, my, my the bishop, um, as you know, and the bishop, the prior, John Hepburn, it could have been him. But, you know, I wanted a link there, you know, a nice strong link with Elizabeth. No, so it works he, very well. And I, you uh, know, I have no objection to doing that. I think probably a lot of people don't realize how little we know about most people in the, certainly probably before the 18th century and, and from people outside the aristocracy, even in the 18th and 19th centuries. There's very little, even when we have information about a person's existence, there's very little that we know about them as people. And at most, we might have, you know, one or two indications that they were here in that place. Even czars, even, you know, really important people we often don't know yes. very much about. That's right, just their everyday, even in the women as well, you know. And Especially you the women, yeah. yeah. You know. Um, as I say, unless you're of the aristocracy, not, nobody's, nobody writes about you, you know. And as I say, Knox himself did hardly gave any clues about his early life. I, I suppose he saw that as his, you know, he was born again when, you know, when he met uh, Wishart. You know, his, his life before that was, you know, anyway, that's... Uh, or maybe he had a wife and six kids, who knows? <laughs> You can speculate, you're a novelist. I know. (laughs) So, so Elizabeth, you mentioned uh, there are two parts in in what you've just said that I'd like to get back to. And the first one is David Lindsay, whom you mentioned. He's another historical character. Tell us about him. And, oh, his, right. and his relationship with Elizabeth. All right, yes. Well, so David I don't know. It depends on how much people know. I didn't know much about uh, 16th century literature, but I studied, I did a course at uh, university on 16th century literature, and David Lindsay was one of the, the poets, along with William Dunbar and Henderson, and he wrote um, a play called And Satyr of the Three Estates, which is a scathing attack on the Roman Catholic Church. You know, he just, you know... Um, really tears it to bits and uh, it, it, it's funny as well you know it's a, it's a wonderful play but David David Lindsay was also the tutor to G, the young James IV uh, he was very very close to him and then when James IV was killed at Flodden he, t- he became tutor to James V who uh, was just a you know he was a babe in arms at the time and um, he took over his education until his mother Margaret Tudor um, who married uh, Archie Douglas, the Earl of Angus, um, she got a bit jealous, I think, you know, and she exiled um, Lindsay to a place called Galton, which is just, you know, a mile or two from Haddington. So he's exiled in 1526, and, you know, 1526 is being in the area. I'm sure he would have met the Hepburns, the, you know, Elizabeth Hepburn, and uh, that's where the, the romance comes in, if you like, although I think it might have started earlier because, um, but anyway. And also in, in his play, The Satter of the Three Estates, um, there's a character of the prioress, 
uh, you know, who unveils herself and shows herself to be a kind of scarlet woman. And she says, well, I didn't want to be a nun in the first place, but I wasn't allowed to marry. And um, I think, you know, I, thought, I wonder if Elizabeth, if you'd met Elizabeth, could she have been the, I suppose, the, the inspiration, the model for this prioress in the play? And maybe he'd met her, you know, when staying at Garlton. Um, maybe and maybe all three met because John Knox would have been a pupil at the grammar school in Haddington. And that was another little clue because looking through um, uh, certainly um, Lindsay's, uh, sorry, John Knox's uh, work, he, he mentions that it was Lindsay who persuaded him to go to St Andrews in 1546, you know, after the murder of Beaton. And uh, he persuaded him to go to, and to St Andrews to, to be, become the chaplain. And he actually, I'm sure he persuaded him to write his first sermon because there's too many similarities between one of his poems and, the, you know, the, the text that Knox used for his sermon. So I think, well, the, the similarities are so striking. And in the history books, it's just said, you know, something like, oh, so David Lindsay's, you know, persuades him to go to um, St Andrews. You think, hey, wait a minute. There's not, and you, you look back, and there's no other mention of Sir David Lindsay anywhere in the, you know, in any of the history books. I think, how did, you know, how did he suddenly pop up, you know? And so I thought there must have been, I'm sure they must have met earlier for him to be able to persuade him to do such a thing, because going to St Andrews could have meant certain death, you know, that you might have been, you know, burnt at the stake along, you know, like his... Um, like his mentor Wishart, anyway. So I like to think perhaps, you know, I made the, the speculation, if you like, that Lindsay helped to stage manage his career. And also in the play, there are characters of, you know, the main character of Divine Correction, you know, the, the lines could have been written for Knox, you know, perhaps they were. <laughs> so that's a, that's a little bit about um, Lindsay and, um, as I say, how, how he could have met um uh, uh, Elizabeth as well in the in the play. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Um, and it it also leads into the next thing, which is that um, through Elizabeth we have a connection to the choir, and through Lindsay we have a connection to the court. So let's talk a little bit about the broader situation. This, although of course nobody knows it at the time, we as the readers know that this is really the last century of Scotland's independence as a state, that James mm -hmm. VI is going to become James I of England and the two countries are going to effectively merge. Mm -hmm. um, although the formal union, I think, was in 1707, right? Um, anyway, there are a lot of, of historical characters who cross your path. You've already talked about Lindsay and Elizabeth Hepburn and John Knox. Mm -hmm. Um, and the kings, James IV and V, and Queen Mary de Guise, and the Earl of Bothwell. And we even have Mary, Queen of Scots, as an infant, um, and then as a young girl, very young girl. Mm -hmm. um, and so you talked a little bit about your, your research, but one of the things that very, is interesting to me as a historical novelist is how you decide which parts of history to reproduce and in the way that we are reproducing it with our modern sensibility and mm. which parts you just decide don't belong in this particular story or that they need to be changed in order to make them fit how do, how do you take that history and craft it into a novel you personally 
Right, me personally. Well, as I say, I read as much as I can about the period. You know, I, I just immerse myself in the period. You know, read not only history, but, you know, read all the poets of the time, you know, and to try and get an overview of the whole situation, you know, and read everything I could about folklore, medicine, even historical novels, but everything I could. And it's all, you know, you cram this onto your brain. You think, how am I ever going to get, you know, sift through all this? And... I think um, one of the things I try to do is look for what I call key points, uh, key, um, keep an eye out for little details that might be overlooked. You know, the fact that, um, for example, David Lindsay, this scene with David Lindsay and, and Knox, um, him persuading him to go to St. Andrews and then work back from that, how that, you know, but... It's, I must admit, the extraneous detail, is, uh, sorry, extraneous information that you've got and trying to sift through that is very difficult because sometimes you're not very aware how much a reader will know. You know, it's um, too much is too much and less might be, you know, not enough. Um, so I, what I try to do is uh, I think in scenes, pivotal scenes, and... I dramatise, I, I, I use a lot of dialogue. I like to think, okay, this has happened. Say, for example, um, birth. I mean, you notice as well that all my all my um, chapters have got titles, you know, because I, you know, I, I couldn't just say chapter one, two, three, four. They've all got titles. So we've got birth, um, death, um, Halloween, and that sort of thing. So I... I tend to think of, well, of what is a pivotal scene and work around that and then add in the um, the historical information as and when. But I try to tell it through the characters and I suppose I determine it at the start of each um, chapter. Now, what is my goal here? What question is being asked? What's the, where's the conflict? And sometimes you write up a lovely scene. I've just finished one in one of the... And I thought, oh, it's all very it's all very interesting, but there's no conflict in it. It's just people talking, you know. Um, and I try to keep my mantra as, you know, show, don't tell. And there's no point in re- rewriting history through an omniscient narrator, you know, um, summarising. So I try to look for a point of view for each scene and then work from that. For example, when I was doing the scene on Flodden, I'm not... I don't. Uh, I can't write about battles. I don't know anything about the slash and bash style of of uh, historical writing. Um, I took it from the point of view. Well, for Elizabeth, she's got. Um, she thinks that uh, Lindsay's involved in the battle. We've got her brothers involved in the battle, and it's there seeing them going off to battle and then talking to the camp followers who come back and it, the widows and the people, the women who've um, who've been involved and uh, do it that way. Uh, rather than re you know rewrite if you want to know the historical details of the battle you can you can look it up but not the, fa- the simple fact that the rain the, the torrential rain the day or two before just made it so slippery that you know a simple thing like that just determined the outcome of the battle and you know for example with the murder of Beaton I tried to tell it from the point of view of his his mistress who was in the castle with him at the time and and tried to create suspense and you know um, do it that way, um, but um, I'm always, I'm always, um, you know, at myself, you know, sort of beating my back, saying, "Now, 
don't summarise, don't summarise. <laughs> Can't get some conflict dramatised, so, you know. Um, but, and then add the, does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> but, but you can do it yourself, you know. <laughs> I do it too, right. I mean, I, I tend to write summary and then I add to it and add to it and add to it and add to it until yeah. well, it becomes just, something. Yeah, well, I, I, I write it all down first. Everything that could possibly happen in a particular bit, which I call my pivotal point. And then I, I, I tease out maybe a little thread and say, oh, that's a good thing to follow. You know, this is a good argument to follow and discard the rest, if you see what I mean. Right. Yeah. Well, you you brought up uh, David Beaton and his mistress, and that leads uh-huh. me right into something else that I wanted right. to talk about, which is um, we haven't really talked about the church side of this very much. All right. Uh, but how does Cardinal Beaton come to have a mistress? And what does this All have right. to do with Scottish Reformation? Because I think the answer is quite a bit. <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose Cardinal Beaton, as I say, in, in Lindsay Satter of the Three Estates, he really hammers the, the, the church because they all had mistresses. You know, that was one of the things. They all had concubines and, you know, they weren't they, they weren't celibate at all. Um, a lot of them anyway, you know, and it was just accepted. Um, you know, I, I mean, well, I won't go into, well, there's a whole history of the celibacy of the Catholic Church, you know, but anyway, um, but David Beaton is, I suppose, he's the defender of the faith in Scotland at the time. Um, he's the, uh, he, he's an interesting character, um, obviously a very strong character, but he was the fifth son of a, a, a Fife Laird, and you know, being the fifth son, he was he was given no land, no. He was either expected to go off to war, or go into the church. The church was probably the best, um, you know, for a lot of um, uh, what what you call the younger sons. And they were given, and, and that's why there's so much um, corruption because the younger sons were given land and uh, you know became lay abbots of churches and whatnot, and you know so they could get their hands on the money. Anyway, he had. Um, uh, he, he chose. He, he went into the church, and he was obviously a very clever chap, very ambitious, clever. He was a fluent French speaker. He had he had actually be, been the secretary to John Stuart, who became the Regent of Scotland. So he was in in France, and um, he worked his way up. And but he got to a certain stage in the church where to go any further, you had to become ordained. You know, um, and it was when he became ordained that. Um, to take holy orders that he progressed his way up and eventually became cardinal but he, he was reluctant to um, uh, you know to give up his mistress and um, that was a lady Marion Ogilvie and she seemed to she, seemed, she was an older well she was 26 when she met him so she was considered sort of over the hill and it was obviously I think it was a love affair there's been so much bad press about beating they said you know especially John Knox he said he had hundreds of mistresses and you know you know queen of you know loads of illegitimate children um, but I don't other things I've read said that he was really quite faithful to this one woman so you don't know anyway but he was um, obviously the, the, the Catholic Church was you know his career his you know and he wasn't going to let the Reformation take it take it over and he was doing all his all he could to stop the reformation in scotland and um he'd already they had in 1528 they had already burned somebody called patrick hamilton who was one of the early reformers who came to scotland and he was burnt at the stake in saint andrews and then of course when george wishart who had been a um i think he'd been a friar he came back to scotland to to preach uh, the reformation and um 
beaten had his eye on him and followed him about until he had enough information to, to you know to burn him at the stake and um interesting enough it was the earl of bothwell who arrested him in haddington and so bishop was burnt at the stake and in retaliation the assassins the five lairds um murdered cardinal beaton and then hung his bloody corp- corpse out of the window of St Andrew's Castle for everybody to see before, you know, salting it like a side of beef and storing it in the dungeon. <laughs> Great stuff. No Christian video for a beaten, you know. So, yes, he, he is the, you know, he's the one who wants to keep the faith, you know, in Scotland. So, yeah, is is a very is important from that point of view. And he and Elizabeth, and this is in the novel now, obviously there's historical evidence for this, but they have a a rather conflictual relationship. He has an eye on her early on in the story. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. She's already a nun, which, you know, yeah. sounds just, <laughs> perhaps he's not too dedicated to the principles of his oath, but um, oh, no. No. She, she gives him a fly in his ear and he goes yeah. off and then he, but, and from then on, I mean, he's one of these 16th century guys who is very unhappy about the fact that Elizabeth has, um, has read the uh, City of Ladies, uh, yes. Dr. Uh, book, and is yeah. trying to implement the principles in her convent, teaching the nuns to read and all of this. And he's, they're, they're constantly sparring, is my impression. And Knox kind of gets caught in the middle of it almost. Yes, yes, it's great. You know, as I say, you like to have conflict. You need to have contrasting characters. And, you know, yeah, um, as I say, that I think Elizabeth is a match for him. You know, she, she doesn't let him get up lightly, you know. And, of course, he's... Um, because he's the most powerful man in the Catholic Church in Scotland, obviously he comes up against John Knox. So, you know, um, John Knox has, you know, uh, a lot to say about him later in life. But, yes, yeah, so, yeah, he's, um, uh, as I say, an important character. And it's great to have a character like that, that you could have this sparring, this uh, this conflict, this drama, if you like, yeah. And also, a bit about, I mean... The Catholic Church, in, well, in, in most of Europe, I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, you only need to look at the de' Medici's in Florence, you know, for, <laughs> for uh, corruption, you know. They were all at it, as they say, and you can see perhaps why, you know, the Reformation came about, you know, the the unhappiness that so-called holy, you know, holy priests and uh, cardinals were really as corrupt as anything, you know. So, yeah. And also, I think he Beaton is the old-fashioned kind um, that he doesn't he doesn't like the fact that Elizabeth has set up this um, education program. And interestingly enough, I did find out in the records that his sister Catherine was a nun at the convent in St Mary's. You know, in the in the records, so um, so that that was a nice little touch to to get her character in. Or, you know, on Elizabeth's sides against her. You know, against her brother. So yeah, does that. Uh, Yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, let me think just a minute because I was thinking of something as you were talking. And, All right. um, <laughs> oh, yes. Um, even though um, Elizabeth is a very bright woman and she mm-hmm. is not, I mean, she doesn't want to become an abbess or prioress, but once she does it, I mean, she really does take responsibility for this convent. Yeah. Um, and yet, even though she sees everything that's going on, on around her, she herself never abandons the Catholic faith. 
No, it's well. I think it's because you know. Yeah, I did think about that. I think part of the thing was fear of change. I mean, what is this revolution? Uh, sorry, re- revolution. It was a revolution, wasn't it? This reformation that's coming. You know, led by you know Luther and Calvin and all these people. I think it was um, you know a fear of change and the fear of heresy. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she was concerned that John Knox was going to be burnt at the stake for his heretical ideas, and she tries to, you know. And one of the one of the uh, you've probably noticed that the um, the motto of the Hepburns is "Keep Faith," you know. And I think she keeps the faith. Well, well, she's been she's been disappointed in love as well, and this is her life now. The convent is her life, you know. She's set up it as a hospital and a education for women, and she sees this as her, uh, I suppose, her mission now, you know, her. Um, this is her calling and the Reformation was really seriously threatening life in convents everywhere you only need to look at what Henry VIII was doing in in England you know dissolving that's the word dissolving all the convents and you know throwing the the nuns out into the street more or less you know if you didn't have um, you know if if your family couldn't support you know what what was going to happen to them all and uh, what would she do if um, St Mary's was, was wound up so and yeah I think it was fear of Fear of change was the main thing, and being, I think, being prioress gave her, you know, it gave her a life, um, not just motherhood. She saw what happened to her sister, uh, Meg, um, and Kate. You know, motherhood and, and marriage was, you know, uh, I don't think it was for our uh, Elizabeth. You know, she had a bit of power and independence, and um, so yes, I think perhaps that was why. I mean, I think she she agrees that the the Catholic Church needs to change, but I think she's also influenced a bit like Lindsay. Lindsay, although he's very very strong in his criticism of the Church, but he he believed, like many, that it should be changed from the inside. You know, but how it's going to be done was you know, well, was anybody's guess. Um, but uh, and I think that well, Knox becomes far more revolutionary. And um, but she doesn't want Knox to follow that path because you know the one he seems hell bent on, which is burning at the stake. And I think you know she wants to keep him. You know, keep faith is her uh, is her motto, and you know, and keep him safe. Yeah, yeah, keep just. You raise an interesting point, which I would like to get to, uh, or just restate so that it's very clear, because you know we now have this very romantic view of marriage, but they didn't have that in the 16th century. It was very much an economic agreement and if you were happy that was nice but it wasn't part of the deal and so we tend to think of nuns as being um, somehow disadvantaged but in fact for a 16th century woman becoming a nun and especially becoming a prioress Mm. was really one way to achieve a certain amount of power and independence yeah yeah, and I think as well that Elizabeth, you know, I mean, she does go to court. You know, she becomes, well, I've got her as a confidant of Marie de Guise because she's been in France. She's a fluent French speaker. And I, there, there is all I can find about in, in Elizabeth in the, uh, you know, the history books is that she, she went regularly. She rode to the hunt with the court of James V, you know. So she was there and thereabouts. She must have been considered, you know, a lady of some importance, you know, to be invited along to something like that. And also... Um, you know, I mean, marriage for one of the one of the chapters I've got is where her 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 aunt, who is the the older prioress, who you know who she takes over from, you know, gives a real rant against marriage and saying, you know, you'll always be you know, 
I suppose, um, continually pregnant, you know, bothered with bairns all the time. And, you know, you, you, you're probably, you could die in childbirth. I mean, women died so, you know, the mortality rate for childbirth was very high, you know. So if that was our fate, you know, um, the alternatives for, and, for many, for many women, was 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 quite attractive, and certainly for Catherine, who was Catherine Beaton, who was um, D- David Beaton's sister, I think you know she chose to be a nun, although Elizabeth didn't. You know, I think she sees the, uh, I suppose, the advantages um, of uh, you know having that power and control. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's great. Uh, so we're starting to wind up. Um, and before I ask you what you're working on now, I'd like to ask if there's anything that we haven't covered that you would really like readers to know about your book, um, whether it's the central theme or just topics that we haven't mentioned, but anything. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, as I say, one of the things I could say is if anybody wants to watch me on YouTube, there's a little thing, there's a little um, mini documentary that gives the, the background to the history, which is quite nice. But yeah, but uh, yeah, I suppose I hope what I wanted to do was, um, I suppose, explore the, the man behind the myth, you know, John Knox, and gone some way to explaining his background, you know. that That's why I suppose I spent so long in his background, you know, how he was brought up with Elizabeth and all the nuns in the, the convent. And one of the important um, themes in the book is, is is free will and um, fate, if you like. You know, do you have free will over your own uh, fortune, or do you know is your is your fate already predetermined? Um, so I think that I see that as one of the <laughs> important themes in the book, which I follow on later when Knox becoming a Protestant um, goes on toward the, to talk about the theme of predestination. You know? Yes, I was going to say that's a very Knoxian <laughs> theme, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I'm taking you a bit by surprise with this one, but was there uh-huh. a passage that you particularly like that you would like to read in addition to the one that we read at the beginning? Oh, is there any passage? You want me another passage? Um, if you have one, just a couple of paragraphs. All right. Uh, all right, yes. Uh, let's see what I've got. Um, usually I read... Um, I like the passage. Here we are. Um, here are the, I'll, I'll just try it. it it's, how many words? Um, um, you know. Well, just a couple of paragraphs. Okay, um... This is the one with baptism. It's got, um, this is the one I really like because it's got Betsy in it. And Betsy, um, Elizabeth is, um, it's the baptism of uh, Knox and Elizabeth is holding this this child in her arms and uh, she's a bit nervous. And she says to Betsy, will you keep hold of him, Betsy? This is when she's becoming the godmother. Uh, While Elizabeth may have been nervous about, about being a godmother and handling a tiny newborn, her uncle had no such anxieties. As well as christening the bairn, Prior Hepburn had agreed to stand as his godfather. With practised hands, he vigorously massaged the bairn's ears and nose with his own saliva and then dabbed his finger with salt before inserting it into his tiny mouth. To open the portals of evil to the order of sweetness and sanctity, he explained. Betsy winced. What kind of religion decreed that this wee mite was a child of darkness and sin, the devil's bird? until a gob of spittle and a splash of water transformed him into a blessed son of God, she wondered. Where was the joy in such a faith? And when the prior asked, Dost thou renounce Satan and all his works? She shook her head. What a daft question for a weak old wain. Betsy unwrapped him and handed him to the prior, who dunked him in the baptismal font, splashing them all with holy water. He nominally patches it feelings its spiritu sanctu. After the third dunk in the bairn, 
His eyelids flickered, but still he made no sound. Brusquely, Betsy snatched the infant and rubbed him dry. When at last he gave a plaintive whimper, her chest heaved with relief. Phew, that was chancy. Better than nothing, she muttered, swiftly withdrawing the pin she sneakily inserted beneath the swaddling. For if the bairn hadn't cried out, it would have been a bad omen that he wouldn't belong for this world. While the holy water may have exorcised the devil, the pinprick had cast out the evil eye. Meanwhile, the prior was blessing the new godson to bring him into the Christian fold. Yanis Knox, as he said. John Knox. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. And I'm glad you got Betsy in there at the end. All right. <laughs> she's one of my favorite characters in the whole yeah. thing. And we should oh. mention that she's a, a folk healer as well as um, yes. the, the one who actually knows something and makes it work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, she's... <laughs> um, so she's a lovely character. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I love yeah, thank um, you. So normally I would ask what you're writing now, but I know you're working. Are you working on the second book of the trilogy or are you now working on the third? Oh, I'm on the second, yeah. Mm-hmm. Second. And is it going to be called the second blast of the trumpet or do you have another? Possibly, idea? yes. <laughs> Unless you can come up with a better alternative, you know, yeah. But yes, it's, uh, yeah, I'm waiting my way through, the, through, through that at the moment, yeah. Because it's quite, as I say, although, uh, you know, the first part, you know, John, Locke, John Knox's life before 1540 is a bit of a mystery. After that, he sort of takes off, you know, it's almost like an adventure thriller. You know, he goes shooting across, you know, he goes to England and Geneva, Strasbourg, Frankfurt. So I can hardly keep up with him, you know. <laughs> so are you going to have to travel to all these places? Oh, well, <laughs> that's not a good idea. <laughs> I have to talk to the husband and see if you can oh, arrange yeah. something. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Marie. Mary, I'm sorry. <laughs> you told me, and I'm still getting it wrong. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, speaking to you. Yeah. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Mary McPherson, author of The First Blast of the Trumpet. You can find out more about her through her publisher's website, www.knoxrobinsonpublishing.com. Like us on Facebook at New Books in Historical Fiction and follow us on Twitter at at New Books Network, one word. You can friend me on Facebook as Catriona Leslie, that's C-A-T-R-I-O-N-A-L-E-S-L-E-Y, and follow me on Twitter at C.P. Leslie. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about New Books in Historical Fiction.